Good morning. All right, Lamentations 5, verses 16 through 22. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful to be here as a family, your family, together, hearts open, eyes closed, being humble in your presence, knowing this teaching is going to produce incredible promises for the future, not being rejected, not being stranded, but we have to know the story. And Lord, we just thank you for Anthony coming up and teaching us today and bringing us to the next level of drawing closer to you. And we just praise you, and we pray that we bless you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Kim. So, yeah, John beat me to the joke. We're at the end, and yay, right? Yay, and uh, this will be the, our, our last study in Lamentations. But as we you know, come to the conclusion of Lamentations, we find, unfortunately, uh, God's people crying out for closure, and they're unable to find it. So, like I said, it, it, it's going to get uh, worse before it gets better. And for the people of God within this particular chapter, we find them crying out for closure, and they cannot find it. Uh, sadly, this is uh, uh, an all-too-common conundrum when dealing with the devastation of life. Sometimes closure is out, out of reach. Uh, Leslie Allen, who's written a wonderful book on the subject of lamentations and uh, processing grief, he says it this way, and, it's, and I find it very helpful. He says, psychological closure for the community remains outside the range of this set of poems. It lays much further ahead and could not be achieved. So dramatic were the experience, experiences they had undergone and were still undergoing. The modern preoccupation with closure impatiently rushes the sufferer to premature conclusions. A closure must be allowed to take its own time. It is marked by the eventual acceptance that it is able to integrate previous suffering into one's life. There's so much wisdom packed within that quote, and it would serve us well to take it deep into our heart as we continue to uh, encounter different degrees of devastation that we meet in life. And of course, he touches on the way we as people want to prematurely skip the process of grief, and we want to go on right into the, the hope section, but the journey from heartbreak to hope is actually embracing that entire process. And so we can't skip the process. As much as we'd like to, as much as we'd like to take that process and throw it in a microwave and, you know, hit nuke and get right into hope, that's part of the steps 
And there's so much wisdom there. And there's also another piece of really helpful wisdom from Ellen, and it's just understanding that sometimes you move into a new space of life. Grief takes you into a new space that you actually uh, inhabit and you move into and you live in, and you learn to live within that place, having hope in that place of devastation. It's not divorced from it. It's actually joined together. And that's what I love about the beautiful paradox uh, and the gift of the the grace that we get from Christ in the gospel. But what we know and what we learn in that quote, what we learn in Lamentations in general, is that sometimes closure takes a long time. Sometimes it's outside the realm of possibility. And anybody would want to argue with me on that, um, I could argue with you on that. I do not have closure losing my son, Miles. He does. He has closure. He's in perfect rest. And that's the thing that gives me peace as I process it. He has perfect rest. He has perfect peace, perfect hope. But me, however, I am on the other side of the now and not yet tension. I'm, I, I know I have hope because Christ has culminated his kingdom in his presence, but the process is not over. There's still an arriving piece of the kingdom that I must, must hope in. I must put my heart into as I wait for closure to come fully. And it won't come until I close my own eyes and see Jesus in that process. And so, so again, I'm not speaking from this place out of... Uh, One, ignorance or arrogance. It just takes time. And that's why I love Lamentations. Lamentations tells us something really beautifully about the people of God, is that some things take time. Some some things, in fact, take a lifetime. And that's all right. That is quite all right. So the question we come to in the book of Lamentations, but in chapter 5 in particular, is so while we wait, while they wait... Um, and while they process the trauma that devastation has uh, brought, where and how are they going to fully root into Jesus, into, into their coming Messiah? How are they going to root into God? Um, and how are they going to find rest? Well, what we see in chapter 5 is they, they do so by way of a really raw request. It's a really raw petition. And... Um, it's what we read, the, 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 the heart of it, the crux of it, is really in that last section that Kim wrote, uh, read for us this, this, um, this morning. In, in addition to the Book of Lamentations being really beautiful poetry, it's also really powerful prayers. And the prayer we're looking at, uh, the, the prayer brings us to the people of God and their present state, their present state of lament, the day-to-day aspect, so to speak, of it. And if you're familiar with the the, the Psalms, you'll notice that this prayer looks a lot like the the lament and complaint Psalms that you find in the Psalms. And I don't know if you know this, but of the lament Psalms, um, a third of those lament Psalms are actually complaints. And, and I love that because uh, if you ask my buddy John, I love to complain about things. <laughs> These kind of lament prayers can be broken down like this. And I'm gonna, they'll be up on the screen. Uh, a cry, which you'll see, the cry or the address, you'll see in verse 1. The complaint, 
which is the bulk of the, the, the book or, the, or that chapter, um, then moving to confidence and prayer to ultimately deliverance. And in fact, when we get to uh, 2022, that deliverance is, is very puzzling, but I'm looking forward to discussing it a little bit. Actually, not a discussion because I'm just talking. You have to listen. Like you're, now you're trapped here. Or you can leave. Nobody's going to tackle you on your way out. Um, so let's begin with the address. Here we see the collective cry of the people, a plea and a petition to God, hoping he will hear and intervene in their suffering. And in, one, in, in verse 1, you hear the cry. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And then in verse 5, it kind of wraps up um, their thoughts. They're weary, and they're without rest. So so you see the state of the people. They're calling out, crying out to God, asking him to remember them in their disgrace, see what has befallen them, and they're noting that they are weary, they're so tired, and they cannot find rest. So they're not finding closure. They They have lost their civil freedoms, they are, uh, uh, they are being abused as, as people by the powers that have come in and, and kind, of, kind of filled that void. And they are now, if you can picture the, if you can picture the Israelites, they're kind of a, a hat-in-hand kind of people. They're, 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 they're reduced to begging. They're reduced to the, the bottom of the barrel. And it's a really sad state. They're completely discombobulated. And it's important to to see that picture and juxtapose it to what God really hopes for his people. Because it's, it's important that God, he brings shalom. He brings peace. God brings balance. He brings equilibrium. He, he, he's our smelling salts, so to speak. And we're seeing the people in Lamentations just beat up. They are in the middle of quite a, a, a fight, and they're seeing double, maybe triple, and they're on the stool saying, I don't know how much more I can take. There's your sports uh, uh, metaphor, uh, John. He's been mentioning I haven't brought a sports metaphor in a while, maybe since high school ministry, so there you go. Um, but it's really re- important to remember where they're at and where they need to be going and what God intends for them. But he intends shalom. He, he, in, he intends to establish their equilibrium to not see them so discombobulated. And so we remember that our remedy, as uh, Calvin uh, has said, it always begins by raising our eyes to heaven. And we see that with, with the, these people. And this, this merely, is, however, is just the first step. The first step in the process of learning lament is in raising um, one's eyes to heaven. The second step especially learning it well and right, is very important because complaint is also part of the process. Like I said, I love complaining, so it's good to know that you can complain. Um, But notice how God's people, when they complain in this particular predicament, it's very instructional for us. You see, their complaint is not just, and all I could think about was George Costanza saying, it's not lupus, right? It's not lupus. You know, it's, that's, I don't know if that like resonates, but that's the only thing in my mind when I think about it. But it's not just an arbitrary complaint. It's actually a complaint with purpose. In fact, 
Their, their complaint is coming from a place of lived experience as it connects to God. And that's how you complain well as a Christian. As you understand your lived experience as it connects to God. And so therefore, their complaint is actually really respectful because it comes from a place of remembrance. And they are, they are literally reminding God of who he is and what he has promised to them. And so when you complain from that place, it's actually very, very helpful and instructional. Like I said, verses 2 through 18 is that collective cry exploding into the heavens. And the, the conditions of the people, as I've mentioned already, they're, they're, they're bleak and dire, and we're not going to kind of beat that dead horse, so to speak. Um, but, I, but we will focus in on what their prayer really is, really honing in on. And I don't know if you noticed it, but in, in verse 2, they, they, they hone in on the fact that they have lost their inheritance. Uh, verse 2 says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Our homes to foreigners. So they're speaking about the Babylonian captivity, drawing their best away from them, and then they're also considering how uh, the, the power void has been filled by a variety of people. But they are focusing in on the fact that they've lost this inheritance. See, this inheritance to have this particular land was um, God's promise to them from way, way back all the way back to the patriarch uh, Abraham, in fact. God had promised him that he would bring him to a land flowing with milk and honey, and, and, then, he, and then at the center of that prized place would, would um, have this jewel, Jerusalem, kind of in the, in the center of it. And for a time, you know, you read a little a blip of, the, of Scripture, and, you, and for a time we know the people of God actually flourished in this place. They, they flourished, and God was blessing them, and the covenant was, was tight, and there was no corruption within it. And However, um, God's people didn't fulfill their end of their responsibility to God's covenant love. Um, Babylonians came in as God's agents of retribution, and uh, subsequent, they subsequently snatched up the land. It's such a sad predicament. And How did they end up there? Well, the people tell us in verses 6 and 7. In verses 6 and 7, it says, We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Do you see that? They tell us who, has, who is responsible for it, and they, they take responsibility for why they have arrived at this place. They said, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. There's, it's interesting. Is, Israel had sought out stability in the nations around them. Their, um, they, they, they sought them through political and economic partnerships. They believed that these alliances could bring them bread, so to speak. And what a shame that they had refused to, the look, to look to the one who had given them bread in the wilderness. If you all remember in the book of Exodus, God gives his hungry people bread from heaven called manna so they wouldn't starve in the wilderness. And by the time we get to the book of Numbers, we find them wishing they were back in Egypt where they would have a, a much larger and complete selection of food offerings. Here's 
a really negative and unhelpful complaint you find in the book of uh, Numbers, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Here's their complaint. Oh, that we had meat to eat. They wish they had the smokers going, Jim. They, they wanted the Traegers out, you know. Um, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing, nothing but slavery, you know. That, 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 that minor detail was missed. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. It must have been some great cucumbers. Um, but Beth, you could have been without the cucumbers, right? You're fine, yeah. She hates cucumbers. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. It's wild. It's wild that God is sending them food from heaven, and they're complaining about it. We can complain about anything. We really can. Israel is an ungrateful people, and ingratitude is a, a subtle evil, but, it's, it, but it is evil. Because they're basically saying to God that his provision, his provision could really not satisfy. By the time you get to chapter 14 in Numbers, uh, you see God asking Moses a question. And it's important for us to revisit as we think about what the people in Lamentations are saying. They say, how long, God says, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? If you're familiar with the Exodus story, you know that God has done so much to, to validate himself, to prove that he's a provider, to prove that he's going to be with them, ride or die. Every step of the way, he's been so good and kind to, the, to them. And now he's saying, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe me? With, in spite of all the things I've done for them. It's so sad when God's people um, don't see that provision. It's so sad when we don't see that provision. Because if we're honest, we're all grumpy people. We're all complainers. We all just have particular ways in which we complain. Some of us are a little bold, and we just do it in front of our, everybody and our friends, and you hear me complaining even on a Sunday morning while I'm preaching. Like, you know, you, I remember a while, a while ago I was complaining about having to preach on a Sunday, you know. <laughs> but... Um, you know, that happens sometimes. But isn't it interesting that we've seen God's provision in a perfect way through his son, through Christ on the cross, in the power of the resurrection, and we can still find ourselves um, moaning and groaning and, and, and just aching and belly aching about, about things about um, when, when God has done so much. Anyway, because Jesus himself, he calls himself the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And in John 6.35, he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And yet, we find ourselves thirsty and hungry. Right? We find ourselves you know, foraging for truffles, so to speak, when the manna from heaven has been given. But that's a good picture of the human experience because we don't always see provision in front of us, and we certainly don't always see Christ with the clarity that we need to, if we're being honest. But it's a shame when we want more, um, we want more around us than what Jesus has already provided in himself. That's a shame, and we should always find that a, a shame. When we as God's people refuse to be satisfied by God and try to find fulfillment in anything else, good or bad, 
And, our, and, and we have to remember that when we are, because that's called idolatry, and when we find ourselves in that place, we have to remember what that's called. That's called sin. And it's, it's a, a, abhorrent to God, and he wants us to, he wants to evaluate, he wants us to evaluate that and, and, and refocus and recenter our hearts on, on himself. And, and so we see that with the people of God, and we, we've, like, looked at that devastation. And, I mean, John took us through that really gnarly chapter last week, and so I won't, you know, I won't inflict mo- more terror on you today. But what we have to note about Lamentations 5 is that, is what we've been reminded throughout the whole book, is that sin will always catch up to us. And its ripples, they, they are vast, they just touch everything. And, and really, we do not, we have no ability to quantify how far those ripples go. That's one thing I've learned at this stage in my life, that, that our sin and the sins of the past, those ripples are far-reaching. They're so vast. And they're, they're, in fact, they're, they're surprising. They're surprising how far they, they go. And as you've already heard in verse 7 from the people's cry, that it even touches our children, that, that, that sin touches our, our children. And, um, and, and so I want to remind you what, what God tells uh, Moses in, in Numbers 14, 12, because there's, a lot, there's, there's so much going on, and this is all connected. Like the devastation of Jerusalem, is, it's all connected to the things God has been saying for, for like nearly a thousand years. So God has been extremely patient. Like nearly a thousand years. That, that sounds like a lot of patience to me for generations to come and go. But he says in verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier, and mightier than they. And so between Moses and Babylon, like I said, there's a thousand years. But, th- but, but a thousand years passes, and Babylon comes, on, comes in, and they, they literally take an inheritance for a season. Seventy years, uh, John was good to remind us, it's going to take 70 years for them to, to, to rediscover that inheritance. But, it's, but it, it started with the obedience of God's people a thousand years ago. Some would call that generational, generational sin. And so here's what's really frustrating. Why are we bearing the brunt and the responsibility for something that happened a long time ago, or happened 300 years ago, or 100 years ago, or whatever. Well, why? Because sin is not fair. Sin is not fair. Two things I've learned at this point in my life. Number one, sin makes no sense, makes absolutely no sense. You sit down and you talk to someone, who, a Christian who's gone through shipwreck, and they tell you uh, how they got there and what they've done now that they've arrived at shipwreck, and you say, that doesn't make any sense. Sin doesn't make any sense. But also, sin is terrible, and it's not fair. It's not fair. And we can say it's not fair for these people, especially when you categorize all the people in Jerusalem. Some of these uh, Israelites are... They're youngsters. They're, they're not even at the age of accountability. What is that age? I don't know, but I know some of them are at that age. Um, and then others are relatively innocent, and yet they're still suffering. Sin is not fair. And what we have to remember is not how to interpret and understand sin and, 
even try and fix all those little tiny problems that led us there, we, we, we need to learn, the, I think, the, the more clear interpretation of the problem here, and it's this, is that the previous uh, generation, if it doesn't deal with its own garbage, it will dump its junk on the following generation. There's something that we can learn there. There's a tangible thing we can learn about our own stuff if we don't take it to the Lord in prayer and in repentance we don't deal with that, we can actually stack that up and, and kind of gift that in, you know, gift that to the next generation, give that garbage to another generation. And in fact, I think at this current um, place in our culture, we are seeing the ramifications of that today. Um, we live in the age of the snowflake. Right? Do you guys know what a snowflake is? Yeah? Um, Wikipedia defines it as um, someone who has an inflated sense of uniqueness, an unwarranted sense of entitlement, are over-emotional, easily offended, and unable to deal with opposing opinions. But if we, if we take, if we take the truth of God's word about what is happening with the people of Israel, what he's saying is that those children are your children and your grandchildren. They're a product of your life. And we say, wait a second, I don't like that. Um, but it's true. The best way forward in, in terms of how we look at Scripture, is to see where responsibility really lies. And I like, I like, you know, I like the way the one comedian put it. He says, all this nuttiness that's going on, well, that's on you, playboy. That's what he says. Because we have set stages, we have um, implemented practices, and they have been just... There's a lot of unhealthy stuff that has just been followed. And, and it wasn't dealt with in repentance, and it just was, it was let loose, so to speak, and, and it continued to, you know, cause problems. But Lamentations tells us that part of the problem of the degradation and devastation of the world is, is on what our forefathers have done and what we have, we have absorbed into it in, in, in this life. Now, before any snowflakes feel seen and heard today and say, yes, vindication, you have to remember what um, the writer says in verse 16. He says this. The, 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 they say collectively, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. What we're learning about real lament in Lamentations is that it's a collective thing. The, the suffering and the devastation of humanity is a collective thing. And that's what I love. If it's Jeremiah, if it's truly the writer Jeremiah writing this letter, we have to remember chapter 3 when he, when he includes himself in the collective lament. He's a prophet who bears no responsibility to the sin of the people, and yet he includes himself within the collective lament. He is he is in such a beautiful way, reminding us of Jesus. Jesus, the, the 
perfectly innocent sufferer who, who goes and, and dies the death of a criminal on behalf of the actual criminals. As, Le as Leslie Allen explains it, and I think it's really, really beautiful and helpful, he says, here the community is confessing the generational solidarity involved in its sinning. I'm telling you, there's such wisdom in Lamentations because it tells us instead of, um, you know, when the proverbial poop hits the fan, instead of pointing fingers like our ancient uh, family members in the garden, instead of pointing fingers and blaming God, and God, God it's the woman who, whom you gave me, so it's your fault that I am naked right now. Um, instead of, you know, instead of pointing fingers... We can put them down, stop blaming everybody else, and, and just be responsible for who we are and what we've done and how that, is, how that has impacted the world around us. Because for us to think that we have lived perfectly in this world and we haven't um, shared some of our baggage with the people around us and, and caused, you know, caused pain unknowingly, it's really absurd and delusional. It's an absurd and delusional thing to think that we don't um, have a negative impact in the world if, in fact, we are still sinners. I mean, if you're not a sinner, then of course. Then you're, then you're like Jesus. You're like, you're like another little Jesus, and man, we should probably consider listening to you all the time. But, but if you're still a sinner, it means you're still sinning means you're still figuring things out and you have lots of room to grow, right? And that's why we humbly show up on Sunday so we can, so we can look to the one who truly is perfect and the one who truly perfects us over time and in a process. Over time and in a process. And that's, that's the gift of, of life with, with our God. But taking responsibility is how one learns, lament, and finds a true road to recovery. Because that's what we're looking for in this life as people. We really are looking for recovery. We find, we're looking for recovery here at church, where we, maybe we have a therapist we sit down and see, a, a pastor, or a, a group of friends we spend time with. But we are repeating our stories. If we're being honest, we're repeating our stories over again, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, and we're hoping that in those processes we find recovery, we find healing, and we, we go from heartbreaks to hope. And then we, when we're praying desperately, I don't know about you, I'm praying desperately, I'm not putting my garbage on my, on my son. But, when I, but I tell you what, when my son's being a little turkey, and, 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 uh, he's, and he's like really in the, in the pocket in, his, in, in being a little turkey, uh, I, I look at him, I look at him, and I say, oh, that's what I, that's what I look like? That's, that's, oh, it's, that's quite a mirror, you know? Listen, it's not, the, the, the message of Lamentations is not for shame, it's to show us how to, to recover in healthy ways. 
and to move beyond. But it first means taking responsibility and perhaps even joining in collective lament and responsibility that we're not directly uh, connected to. And only Jesus can show us that as a, be- a truly beautiful thing. So we must remember that. And, and, here, and one, one little note, because it's probably good to maybe talk about this one of these days, maybe, maybe one of these days, but, but th- remember this about generational sin and the garbage we heap on one another in next generations. Generational sin will tell you about the land that you were born into, but the gospel tells us that it doesn't need to be the land of your permanent citizenship. And that's why the gospel is so beautiful. It tells us where we, the land we were born to, but that we don't have to, it doesn't have to be our permanent place of citizenship. We don't have to live there. That's, that's hope giving, right? That's life giving. Now, um, notice the next part of the prayer because it's also critical. Don't miss the, the, uh, the confidence, the praise part, the trust and the praise part of the prayer. Because in verse 19, they say, but to you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Listen, healthy complaint is ultimately about where you are putting your confidence. Because there, be, there can be complaints disconnected from God, and it's, it is like George Costanza, just complaining. And I, I, maybe why I have George Costanza in my brain is because I feel like I embody him sometimes. I just complain about everything. And it's not really, you know, directed towards the throne of God. But with the people here, they, they show us that complaints, proper complaints pointed to God are super helpful. In fact, it's theologic, theological because this people, their hope really is hinging on the immutability of God, which we covered in chapter 3. But they are, they're, they're touching on something very specific about God's character and nature here because they say your throne endures to all generations. So the good news is that God's reign is not has not come to an end as they view the devastation around them. And that is so important. That's what the resurrection tells us, is that even though death has come, we have a resurrected Savior who, who can give us hope if we can capture that perspective. And that's what's so beautiful about what the people of God teach us and what they view here. They're saying, this land is devastated. We are, we are hat-in-hand sort of people, but God... Will you see us? And will you remember that you are God to, from generation to generation? Did they quote Psalm 100, verse 5? For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations? I don't know, but whatever was going on, they were remembering where they needed to direct their request, and they were embracing it with full commitment, confidence, and trust. That's how you complain well in your prayers. The people show us this, and they teach us something very powerful about prayer. They call to God, complain in their suffering, confess their sin. This puts them on a path where they remember who God is, and it's the only way they're going to find rest in the reality that they find themselves in. Now, let's look to the final part of their prayer, because it, it, it displays, perhaps, that some rest has been found Maybe not total closure, but they have found a little bit, or perhaps the beginning of deliverance. And we'll read it there again in verse 20. 
Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And you're saying, where is, where is uh, hope in this? Well, like I said, when you read Lamentations and many books of the Bible, sometimes you have to really squint to see the goodness there. But it is there. The prayer closes with the people of God being certain of two things. They know they need restoration, and they don't know if God will, is, is, will ever uh, stop being angry with them. They know they need restoration, and they don't know if God will ever stop being angry with them. It appears that the prayer closes with some real surrender. And I'm telling you, rest only begins, real rest only begins with real surrender. So if you can actually get to a place of finally waving the white flag, then you're on a road to recovery. Then you're on a road to uh, finding true rest. They concluded that they might be totally and utterly rejected by God. And I think this is beautiful surrender because they don't say, okay, God, we confessed. Now you need to forgive us and move on and restore Jerusalem back to its former glory. You have to do that. No, they, they say, and they, and they certainly don't say, we will wait for you, but if, you, if your anger is burning too long, then we're going to move on. We're going to bail. We're going to abandon you. No, they don't say that either. No, they simply wait. They humbly make the request in true surrender, and they wait. And they will continue to suffer, but triumph and, and total rest will come if and only when God determines and that's how you know someone is really on a road to recovery because they have, they're finally um, completely at the mercy of God and, they, and they're now living out of that place. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to practice it. And, me, and we may not like the way Lamentations ends, but that's the way it ends, and it's intentional. Think about, think about this. Uh, Philip Graham Ryken, he has this little piece of commentary for us to consider. He says, The possibility of being beyond redemption is so alarming that many Jews refuse to end their reading of Lamentations with the book's final verse. To this day, whenever the book is read, it is the custom in many synagogues to repeat verse 21 after verse 22. Do you see? Even they don't want uh, verse 22 to be the final words in synagogue. And I love that. I love the embrace of the reality of what happens when we find ourselves in sin and rebellion and at total surrender to God, waiting to see if, if how the mercy of God will unfold. Because we know God's mercy is, is definitive and eternal in, in perpetuity. It's going to happen. But, but what I think is beautiful is when we wait to see how it's going to unfold. How, grace is going, how is grace going to restore this devastating situation? And even the people of God in synagogues, they say, let's read that other verse again. So verse 22 is not the last word. Why? Because we can't live without closure. And we have to speed up the, the, the process of closure so we can get it. Even if we have a semblance of it, we'll... We'll, we'll, read, we'll, read, we'll read verse 21 again, right? 
So I, I think this book is fascinating. And, I, and I, think, I think the way we approach it as broken humans is fascinating. So moving forward, is there a possible path of peace for these people? And furthermore, is there a possible path for peace for all people? Will they find closure? And again, we have to, we must, and thankfully we can, view this whole devastating book through the lens and the perspective of the gospel. What does the gospel say? Well, the gospel declares that God's anger towards all sin was quenched by Jesus on the cross. That's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us that Jesus suffers shame, so we don't have to live in shame for eternity. And we can even be freed from shame in the moment, in the present. The gospel tells us that Jesus dies so that we who are dead in sin may actually really live. That we may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. See, the gospel, Palm Sunday, some people waving palm fronds and Jesus rolling up into Jerusalem on a, on a little burro. Um, I really rolled those R's real nice, right? You like that? You, should, you guys, a little side note, you should listen to the way John pronounces churro. Um, it's cute. Anyway, that's for later. It's really cute. So um, catch, catch up with them after church. But the gospel... Palm Sunday, the cross, the resurrection, it tells us that Jesus dies so that he might restore a prodigal people to himself and return an inheritance lost to them. Do you believe that? Because it's not just an inheritance lost to the people of Israel in this place called Jerusalem, but guess what? The gospel is telling us that the inheritance that we lost in Genesis chapter 3 has been restored to us right here, right now, by Jesus Christ himself. That's the now part of the kingdom of God. Do you believe that what you lost in, in many ways, in the deepest of ways, was restored to you, that inheritance was restored to you by Jesus on the cross and vindicated in the resurrection? That's what we're celebrating here, in case you're wondering. And that's what we're going to be continuing to celebrate this week, and, and it will culminate uh, on this, this, this following weekend. But we're closing lamentations. So, whew, we did it, guys. And you mostly enjoyed it. Maybe. You're saying, I didn't, maybe it's your time for complaint. I didn't enjoy anything. It was terrible. The whole thing was terrible. But, since we're wrapping it up, wrapping up Lamentations, have we learned lament? I don't know if we ever fully learn, but we are definitely learning. Hopefully we're learning more. Hopefully we learned a few more things about the broken world and the brokenness that we're all a part of. Hopefully we've learned something. And so I think the questions that Lamentations has asked us is, do our hearts break with what actually breaks the Lord's heart? Because we get fired up about a lot of things, but is it the same thing that God is fired up about? And are we broken about what God is actually broken about? That's what Lamentations asks of us. Are we really in line with the heart of God and 
on, in the broken world in which we live. And does the, the collective cry of people, even if it's not something that we're participating in, or if, even if it's in another state or in some far-off land, does the collective cry of people slow us down first to tears and just embrace the collective cry of humanity? and know that Jesus alone is the answer to this collective cry. Does, does, have we learned to slow down? Can we sit in ashes, even though we don't like to sit in ashes? Can we sit in ashes and know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and that his mercies never come to an end, and that they're new every morning? And can we embrace that hope for people who don't even know that's their only hope? Do we value what the Lord values? Do we hope in him alone? And can we as a church and individual believers carve out space to lament and not just praise? Can we embrace every bit of life, no matter how beautiful and how painful it may be, and see that Jesus alone is good and helpful in our heartbreak? Ultimately, I think Lamentations tells us God is good in it all, or he's not good at all. So it's Are we wasting our time here? Or is Jesus true? And remember, the the remedy for lament always, the road to recovery always, is in first just simply raising our eyes to heaven. We look to the hills, where does our help come from? Right? So may we Continue that posture of an ascending to the Lord's hill and knowing and seeing where our true hope comes from, from Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for the grace that you've given us to finish a really challenging and difficult book. Thank you for your people responding um, with their presence, their, their, their eyes and their hearts uh, in, in attention to what your Spirit has. And God, that is our prayer today, is that Holy Spirit, you would continue to give us eyes to see and, 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 and hearts to, um, to re- respond to and, and just actual practical life decisions and choices to, to step into um, your kingdom even further. If, if God, if you've, if you've granted us that, that sweet vision, may we continue to press on into it. Uh, even further. And if there is anyone here who um, needs to know you more, perhaps even for the first time, I pray that um, that connection would happen today as well. In Jesus' name, amen.